Hey everyone, welcome to uh, episode 52 of the Chirps podcast from Birds on the Black. Uh, episode 52, I feel like we should bring up the soon-to-be-dearly-departed Michael Waka. I, I assume to be the dearly-departed Michael Waka. Mm. I would be very surprised if he's uh, back next year. But you, you may have just heard, and by the fact that I'm doing the intro, uh, Tara is not with us this week. But I am joined uh, for the first time by kind of the uh, star of Birds on the Black, the oh. host of uh, host of Prospects After Dark, which I've heard uh, – called in uh this was meant as a compliment but i've heard someone call it terrifying yeah uh, <laughs> and uh, so yeah i'm joined by kyle reese kyle how are you doing i'm doing great i'm thrilled to be a part of this i'm gonna try to do right by tara yeah yeah that, that's a tough uh that's a tall order i don't think any of us really ever do right by tara but you know we're, we're lucky she even still sticks around with all of us but no we're uh very happy to have you here it's been a very Busy day uh, in baseball world, uh, both within the Cardinals uh, realm and also beyond with all the stuff going on with the, the Astros. A uh, big article dropped uh, earlier today in The Athletic, and we're going to get to that later. Uh, but first, I feel like we might as well talk about the Cardinals because uh, Ken Rosenthal broke today. I, I think it was Rosenthal that Adam Wainwright signed – uh, for another year, uh, for five million dollars, um, with uh, opportunity for five million more in incentives, so he has a chance to max that out at ten million. I don't know about you. I was actually shocked, um, you, you know, because it basically has the same ceiling as last year's contract, I believe, um, with the incentives. I was actually shocked they didn't just say, "Here's ten, here's ten million, here's twelve million. Thanks for all you've done." I have to believe that uh, Mr. Wainwright was behind that more than the Cardinals will. He just seems like the kind of guy to me who would say, you know what, give me a raise. I definitely earned the raise, but I still want to fight for my contract. Uh, but yeah, I'm with you. I thought for sure it'd be one guaranteed number. I thought the number would be just completely guessing like seven, five or eight or something like that. When I found out that it was five years with five incentives built in potentially, I thought, oh, I'm surprised I didn't just give him 10, but you know, just, uh, uh, projecting my own personal feelings on Adam Wainwright. It just seems that he's the kind of guy who would want to fight for a little bit of cash. Do you think, and, and this might be a silly question. First off, I love how you call everyone Mr. Ah, you, you do that on I, prospects after dark. I, you do that to uh, regular, just people like uh, on the internet. I've noticed as well. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that is. You know, it's, it's tough because I, I have a very loose workplace and I try to like, I'm not really allowed to do it at work and it's, I hate not being able to do it. And I, I guess it's just something that's inside of me and I can't mm -hmm. like it. I actually have like a second at work where I have to stop myself before saying like, uh, my boss's last name is Heine before saying Mr. Heine or Mr. Whistler, or like, I have to actually say their first name. It's, it's a tough thing. I just, I don't know. It's just a, nice little respectful thing that you can do or i don't i don't know no, My brain is i i admire it It always sounds very respectful and uh, very highbrow uh which oh. is unlike anything else you you typically do on prospects <laughs> <after dark. laughs> yeah it's the most highbrow thing about me no <laughs> doubt about that um what, what i was about to say before i spun off into that is is there any chance wainwright's like look we have uh money we, we might need to also spend elsewhere is that is that ridiculous 
Um, so I'll go ahead and take five million and uh, see who else you can bring on board. That seems like an awfully Adam Wainwright thing to me. Uh, he, you know, I, I get the impression too with with uh, with Adam. I'm going to try now to call him by his first name. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no. With I also get the impression that he's the kind of guy who maybe doesn't necessarily value money on the same level that the majority of us do. You know, he's he's made a good amount of money, but I've heard him talk in the past about his own personal family. Where he says that you know he doesn't want to leave, and this might be frowned upon by you know everyone who's trying to build you know cash reserves for their family. But he said before that he doesn't want to leave an absurd amount of money to his kids because he wants his kids to work for their own money. Like he wants to leave, he, he wants like his money that he's made to go to charities and and to help people who are less fortunate than he is. So I think it stands to reason that he would be the kind of gentleman who would not be like. Uh, who would think about that? Who would say, you know what, if the team's only willing to spend this much or it's in the budget for this much, I'll do what I can to help uh, because he wants to win a, a, another World Series. And, that, and that's evident. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think the quote from him has always been, you know, I want to bounce the very last check I write. Uh, that's it. Yeah. And uh, I, I think he's earned close to $140 million throughout his career. So, yeah, he's he's most certainly doing fine in that regard, um, regardless of how much he's going to get paid next year. And I also think it's worth noting, uh, to compliment what you said, that he's also, last year, very publicly, went on the record to fight for other people to get paid. Um, free agents, talking about how ridiculous it was that uh, Kimbrell, um, you know, was unsigned until, you know, midway through the year. Same with Dallas Keuchel. Uh, and, and I thought that was a really cool thing from him. Yeah, minor leaguers. Yeah, we talked about yeah. minor leaguers getting paid. Yes. So speaking of minor leaguers, you are kind of the uh, resident expert on minor leaguers. I the only reason I even know about a lot of Cardinals prospects is because of you. Uh, the Blue Jays, correct me if I'm wrong, were the first team to kind Ooh. of say we're going to pay our uh, minor leaguers more. Is that correct? Last year when the Heat kind of got turned on, uh, I believe it was Emily Walden who was the first one to really, really, like the, the first uh, national writer to really put the heat on about paying minor mm-hmm. leaguers. I think the Blue Jays were the, the first team to say, we're going to pay our minor leaguers more. Uh, Tara and I were talking at Blogger Day, and we both had the intent of looking in to see if it actually happened or not. And I didn't, and I'm not sure if Tara did. But I think that that could have been like something that was going to happen in the future, or it might have been potentially like from the Toronto Blue Jays organization, just trying to put out a fire. Yeah. But I'm not exactly sure what ended up happening there. That is okay. That is interesting because that story that was a big news drop when that came out. I don't remember when it was now. Um, and you're right. I really haven't heard a single thing about it um, in the weeks that really followed. Uh, I guess my question is: Have you heard? Anything, any rumblings at all that the Cardinals were going to follow suit or any other teams were going to follow suit in that regard? Speaking of Blogger Day, when when Mr. When Mr. Mosellock and Mr. DeWitt left the, the room, my first thought after we did the Q&A, my first thought was I really blew it because I had every intent of asking that very question. Uh, if that was something that was in their long-term plan or if it's something that they've considered. Uh, and I blew it. And I, I don't have like connections within the organization. I, I talk to people, uh, you know, and I don't get the impression. It, it seems like right now a lot of organizations uh, are 
they're they're like holding things close to the vest, especially as the major leagues and the minor leagues uh, negotiate their next collective bargaining agreement. You know, uh, Baseball America wrote a great article a couple weeks back, maybe even a couple months back at this point, uh, just about how tumultuous the agreement between the major leagues and MILB and MLB could end up being. Uh, their their contract expires at the end of this coming, you know, at the end of the 2020 year. Yeah. And it could end up being a very, very difficult negotiation and there might be contraction. Uh, there might be an entirely different system in place for the low levels of the minors and the draft. And I get the impression that uh, a lot of teams will hold off making any adjustments to the pay of the minor leaguers until that collective collective bargaining agreement is agreed upon. Okay, so if you can, to the best of your ability, can you kind of explain to people like me or anyone else who might be listening exactly like what these people are making? Like, so, for instance, if you're playing in Peoria or, or I guess Palm Beach or, you know, let's say you're someone like uh, Randy or Rosarena who's, you know, been everywhere now and has uh, had a cup of coffee in St. Louis and, but is mostly, I think still thought of as a, a Memphis player, although I don't, you might be able to tell us where you think he'll start this season, but yeah, well, what are these guys making from, from top to bottom? The, 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 the two notes that are 100% for sure is mm-hmm. in your first year after being drafted or signed, you cannot make more than $1,100 per month at while playing minor leagues. Now, that's not for 12 months. That's only for the months that you are playing the game. Okay. So so that's in your first year after being drafted or signed. Now, where it gets dicey is if you're a player that's sent to extended spring training, you don't get paid. Uh, they have other arrangements and stuff like that, but you don't get paid for your time in extended spring training if you're not on a 40-man roster somewhere. You don't get paid until you find yourself on affiliated baseball playing affiliated baseball. And after that, it gets super, super dicey. Uh, there's, you know, I've seen multiple articles written about some guys get 10000 a month. Uh, some minor leaguers. And by the way, just to like recap that a little bit, yeah. that means that like at most in your first year at the minor leagues, you're going to make about $6,000 at most. You know, you'll get a little bump if your team makes the playoffs. That happens at the minor league level as well. Uh, but you're making $6,000. And those guys do have a daily stipend when they go on the road. But it's not like, from what I understand, it's like 15 bucks, 10 bucks on the road here and there. Like, you know, enough to get you ch- something protein laden from Chipotle or Kidoba. And, and that's it. Um, and, you know, those guys live four, four tight in a one bedroom, potentially two bedroom apartment in, in whatever town they're based out of. Uh, but after that, it gets really dicey. You know, a lot of guys try to get a little extra money or a little extra whatever written into their contract as part of like a step builder. But that's hard to do because of the just it's just tough to do. Um, but yeah, I think I think what ends up happening is when you the big thing is if you can get added to a 40 man, you get a big increase. And I've, I've heard conflicting reports on what that increase is. You know, I've talked to players None of the players want to talk about how much money they make. None of the sure, players want yeah. to get on board with, like, you know, even even talking about it in any way. Uh, but I, I will say that it, it really does vary. Uh, you're not going to find a, a minor leaguer that wasn't signed on a specific minor league deal. So guys like, you know, guys like John Nagowski might be a little bit different because he went to independent ball and signed with the Cardinals after independent ball. 
John Brebbia might have been a little different because the same thing happened with Brebbia. You know, uh, Ron Hell Ravello is a really interesting topic because Ravello was drafted and then released. And he's since been signed to two additional minor league free agent contracts. And more than likely, the Cardinals probably had to pony up a little bit of extra money to keep Ravello in the system uh, last last winter. So he probably makes a little bit more. But the gist is that aside from whatever bonus you signed to or you signed for, you're not making any money uh, at all unless you've made it on a 40 man. Uh, and especially if you've made it on a 40 man and found your way on a 25 man. So uh, you bring up Randy Rosarena. That's a great great topic uh randy rosarena signed for i think the bonus the bonus was either 1.5 or 2.5 okay so i I forgot that yeah go ahead well so no this is actually really important i I get it mixed up because he and adolis garcia who we call jag Mm -hmm. signed at about the same time and one of them signed for 1.5 and the other one signed for 2.5 and i can't keep them straight but it, we'll just say Randy was 2.5, just to, to pad our numbers here a little bit, to, to make it look better than what it really is. Now, Randy has an agent. So agent gets 4 or 5% off the top right there, so of that 2.5. And then of that 2.5, about, what, 46% of it gets taxed. So he ends up with, we'll, just, we'll call it a $1.5 million bonus. Now, Randy makes... $5,500, we'll call it 6000 again, just to up the numbers. He makes 6000 that first year. He has a family, uh, I believe, that lives in Mexico. He's a Cuban refugee. Mm-hmm. Uh, he set up shop. He was noticed as part of like the Mexican Winter League and the Mexican League by the Cardinals, signed out of that league, uh, has a family there. Now, he has to play in the Winter Leagues, the Mexican Winter League, uh, for like three straight years so that he can make enough money to support his family in Mexico. Uh, and, you know, that includes that relatively, to, you know, to us regular people, that large signing bonus. Uh, that's how hard it is. And, you know, Randy's had some weird, interesting minor league seasons over the last two years where, you know, it wasn't the exact same as, as what you saw when he first entered the minor, like the Cardinal system. He, he looked fatigued. He looked skinnier. You could tell that, you can just tell that he wasn't the same. And it's because he's having to play baseball year round to support his family because that's his skill. You know, that's, that's what he was trained to do uh, in his native land. So yeah. it, you know, it, it goes to show you how tough and how hard this life is. You know, I imagine that he, when he got added to the 40 man and he got his first check, his first check uh, for his first month at the major league level was more than he had made without a doubt, uh, in the minor leagues. I forgot what it was. I think it would have been like $6,000 uh, or no, it would have been, oh man, I did the numbers for the birds on the, or the prospects after dark group chat. I'm in, uh, it was like he made more in his first month at the major leagues than he had made in definite. It was absolutely his first year at the minors, but I think it might've been like his first nine months as a minor leaguer. So it, that, that goes to show you like what they're fighting for. Yeah. That's, Super, super interesting. Um, you know, when you think of the minor leagues, basically, if you live in any medium size or even small city in the U.S., uh, there's a very good chance you're going to be able to watch professional baseball. Uh, now, minor league baseball, but still, you know, minor league baseball is awesome. Is it fair to assume that if a ton of pressure is put on baseball to pay the minor leaguers more, that baseball's response is going to be, okay, fine, but we're going to have to get rid of a lot of these affiliates. 
Yeah, that's uh, that seems to be the initial reaction for Major League Baseball. If uh, the Baseball America reports are to be believed, and they absolutely are, when Major League Baseball presented Minor League Baseball with their first uh, uh, proposal for the collective bargaining agreement, contraction was a big part of it with the idea that that would help go to pay the players uh, that would not be a victim of contraction. The contracted leagues would be the rookie level league. So uh, for the Cardinals affiliates, that'd be Johnson City and it would be State College. State College yeah. Yeah. So uh, they, you know, those two rosters would be contracted and that money would go to help you know, pay the other players. The, the interesting thing is I call it the Cronky clause. Major League Baseball found the one thing uh, that they can use to leverage minor league baseball <laughs> uh, and its facilities. All they have to do is say uh, your facilities aren't up to par and that's why we're going to contract you. You know, it's the same reason why Mr. Cronky was allowed to move the Rams from St. Louis to Los Angeles because they had a stadium lease deal. And if the stadium didn't match the the top third of the NFL, he could do whatever the hell he wanted with the team. Uh, that's what's going on here with minor league baseball. They're going to be able to say if they want, uh, sorry, state college, your facility is out of dated, uh, out of date, even though it might not be. Uh, we, we are going to have to contract your team uh, as part of our ambition of paying players and also consolidating the minor league system. So that seems to be step one. And I think it's really dangerous. I, I love the way you introduced that, Alex. Uh, the idea that, you know, the awesome thing about baseball, about major league baseball, is that at nearly any town in every state within two hours drive, it is a... a a, a professional team. You know, it might be the minor leagues. It might be like the amateur version of your professional team. And I use, I do air quotes when I say amateur, but it's like the amateur version of your professional team where you can go and you can stand two feet away from them. You can sit two feet away from them for $5. You know, you don't know if the next player is going to be the player you're five feet away from. You don't know if that's going to be Tyler green or Tyler O'Neill or Tyler Heron. Uh, you know, you don't know who it's going to be, but you can get, you can go there before the game, they'll shake your hand. They'll take pictures with you. And there isn't a line. There isn't hubbub. It's just excitement. It's exposing the next generation to the sport at its purest. And for baseball to think that it's in their best interest to isolate those fans in those parts of the country that aren't necessarily affiliated with a major league team, I think is terrible, terrible business. Uh, not only do I think it's bad for minor leaguers, not only do I think it's bad for the business in general. But I think if you're trying to grow your business, the last thing you want to do is contract 42 teams right off the top uh, in your organization, especially when your business is prolific. And, and fair to call that a bad faith argument that this is the only way we'd be able to pay the minor leaguers more is to contract. Oh God. Yeah, okay. absolutely. <laughs> At least in my opinion, you know, but that, that goes into political views and stuff like that. Yeah. I think a lot of people, you know, I know that in the past when I tweet about uh, my desire to have them to see the minor leaguers get paid, you know, there's there's a very interesting group of people. Uh, and I, I'm not going to say that I, I I disagree with them per se. I get where they're coming from. But there's an interesting group of people who just cannot get past the idea that players at the minor league level, even for six thousand dollars a year. Uh, and again, it's not six thousand. It's probably closer to four after taxes and all that stuff. But for six thousand dollars a year, 
uh, are, are getting paid to follow their dream. Right. Uh, and, you know, if they want to get paid, they should just get a real job. Right. Uh, ne- never mind that nowadays kids are training to ha- have baseball as a real job uh, starting at like age four, which is a whole nother topic in general. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a horrible but bad faith uh, argument for sure. Right. And, and certainly some people are, are able to make whatever it is, $6,000 a year and play baseball because they have a support system already in place. Yeah. Um, but as you mentioned with a player like Randy Rosarena or a slew of other players who don't have that, then you're left with the option of I either have to stop doing this um, not only something that is my dream, but something that could be incredibly lucrative down the road. Um, or I, I just have to accept the fact that me and my family, we're just going to have no money. Yeah. And, and that, and that's, yeah, that's not, those aren't the two greatest options in the world. Uh, so you brought up rookie ball as a place w- where contraction could hit. Give us an idea of, of who we'd be missing out on. Like, because this is where my knowledge of of kind of prospects and the minor leagues is not that great. Like, like let's say you're a player like Nolan Gorman. Do you ever even step foot in State College or Johnson City, or are you going straight to Peoria? Well, Gorman, because he was a little younger, uh, he went to Johnson mm-hmm. City. He started at Johnson City, and then, uh, you know, he uh, he pushed his way into a yeah. different picture. But you know, the Cardinals were. They tried everything they could to keep him from Peoria for as long as possible. Uh, and, I, you know, I personally was glad that they did. I, I think that there's a an urge to rush prospects through the system these days from the fan base, uh, but, you know, based largely on people like myself who, you know, write about them and talk about them and make them, you know, get who get excited about them and try to push that excitement maybe just a little too much. Uh, but you know, there's there's an overexcitement about maybe pushing players through system when those guys need uh, need time to develop. But guys like Nolan Gorman, they'll get a they'll get a taste at a rookie level. You know, any of the teenagers uh, that get drafted, high school kids, usually they're if you know they'll start at like the GCL level, which is it, it's full baseball, but it's a little bit more instructional, uh, very very raw. Most of the the Gulf Coast League or uh, most of those leagues are at spring training facilities. Uh, so they're kind of a little bit more controlled, a little bit more instructional, uh, even though it is like nine inning baseball. But uh, yeah, and then you get like your next your next tier. So what ends up happening a lot of times is after the draft. Now, the other thing about State College and Johnson City that probably needs to be said is they're short season league. So is the Gulf Coast League, but they're short season. Uh, that means that State College fires up in the second week, usually like between the 10th and the 15th of June. And then the Johnson City season starts up about a week after that. And those rosters are usually filled immediately with the draft picks or draft, you know, the high school age draft picks from the year before. So what you'll what you see at like Johnson City this year is uh, like last year, one of the Cardinals draft picks was a kid named Mateo Gill. Uh, Gill is a potentially hot shot shortstop prospect. Uh, uh, He was at Johnson City this year after spending last year at the Gulf Coast League. Uh, one of my favorite draft picks from this past draft, uh, a pitcher out of UCLA, uh, John Ralston. Uh, Ralston was at State College. So what you see is you see a lot of the recent draft picks. A lot of the guys who are getting hyped, they'll start at the Johnson City, the State College, the short season, uh, the rookie level, the rookie levels. And 
again, like you talk about hyping up your game, keeping the game interesting for, you know, Pennsylvania and Tennessee, you put the draft picks there and that's exciting. That invests that yeah. city in a way that otherwise wouldn't be invested, not only in major league baseball, but in baseball in general. So generally like the Johnson city level is the younger kids, usually state college or like the advanced high school pitchers usually go to that level. Uh, some are uh, the advanced uh, college pitchers go to that level. It, it's kind of divided up that way. Although in recent years, because teams are trying to rush their prospects through the system a little bit more, you'll see, especially the Cardinals, like the Cardinals aren't rushing people through the system, but they're being more aggressive about how they're escalating people through the system. Uh, but you'll see teams getting more aggressive with the college draft picks and putting them at Peoria, which is the lowest level of full season A affiliated baseball. Okay. And w with regard to Johnson City, I, I have a good friend who lives in Johnson City. He works at the VA in Johnson City. And they there are lovely people in Johnson City, um, but that's a town that needs a baseball team. Yeah. <laughs> you need things to do there. Uh, so, yeah, that would be a big shame if, if Johnson City lost uh, their affiliate. So, yes, let's hope that doesn't happen. Yeah. And I, you know, I've heard stories of, I have a cousin who lives in Atlanta. I have some friends who live in like suburbs out of Atlanta. And even they as like marginal Cardinal fans will take a weekend trip to Johnson city, Tennessee, mm -hmm. just to see what's going on down there. Just to see, uh, you know, for Johnson city has two international prospects. Uh, this past year, they had two additional international prospects. Uh, Jan, Jan Torres, rather, an outfielder that the Cardinals acquired in the Oscar Mercado deal, uh, and a third baseman, third baseman named Malcolm Nunez. And I, you know, I talked to them about those two guys, and I, I, they, I said, just go take a look at them. And they went down there, and they had a great weekend. And like that might be your only chance to see the two of them together. You know, the chances of both of those guys making the major league is, is probably one percent. The chance of one of them making the major leagues is, I think they say. You know, Baseball America has done the work and they say 9.4% of draft picks end up making a major league debut, uh, end up with a war above 0.01. Mm -hmm. uh, that's only, you know, less than 10%. Uh, so I don't know what it is with the international picks. I can't imagine that it's anywhere near 9.4%. But like the chances of seeing them together at Springfield are is small. The chance of both of them making it to Memphis is small, but they're two impressive minor league prospects for the St. Louis Cardinals that do have a chance to make an impact in the major league. So I said, go down there and check them out. And they had a great weekend in Johnson City. Uh, I don't know what that entails. I would love to know. I was, I couldn't, you know, not to beat up on Johnson City, but I live in St. Louis. And, you know, if there isn't somebody getting murdered in the weekend, I, I'm not interested. So uh, I, I, you know, I, I, it's just awesome. It's a great environment. And I, I just can't imagine it being good for baseball to eliminate those environments. Uh, it just seems disastrous. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about Mike Schilt? I, I feel like we should. Uh, he was in the news today. And also since we were just talking about the minor leagues, you know, he obviously managed all over um, the Cardinals systems. Uh, he won manager uh, of the year today for the uh, National League, obviously. Um. You know, I don't really care much about this award. I think I tweeted last week that uh, my commentary on the Manager of the Year award uh, is in 2015. I argued that Matheny uh, deserved to win the award, and I also wanted him to be fired. Uh, so, <laughs> um, 
But no, I, I thought this was really cool for Mike Schill. I don't know if he did a better job than Craig Council or uh, Snicker or whoever else was up for the job, but he certainly deserves some credit somewhere. I mean, you know, the team, you know, as we discussed all year, they looked better in the field. They were better on the base paths. Uh, his bullpen management, for the most part, was better than what had come before him. So, and most importantly, they won the division uh, in a division that was, at least before the season, picked to be uh, perhaps the most competitive in all of baseball. I don't know if that ended up being the case, but it was still a solid division. There were no teams that were actively tanking, uh, and the Cardinals won, and they had a winning record against every team in the division, uh, which is what you want to do. So I say good job, Mike Schill. I completely agree. You know, I, I didn't feel like I was angry as much during games as I was uh, last year and the year before. Uh, being, being a manager in Major League Baseball is about as thankless of a job this side of being an umpire. So, you know, I, I have a tendency to be critical of Mr. Schilt and like maybe some of his roster decisions, uh, maybe not playing outfield rookies uh, like that's always been my biggest like beef with him maybe not trusting some of the young pitchers uh the way that i would trust them of course but i i thought that he did a very good job you know you can tell that he just has uh, a very loving way about him and you can tell that the cardinals respond to that and you know we definitely invest a lot in what goes on with the x's and o's but you know one thing that's easy to forget is if you don't have the clubhouse on your side, you're not going to do anything. Uh, I feel like we saw that, especially with Mike Matheny, as the clubhouse kind of turned on him, or at least our perception of the clubhouse turning on him, the reported perception of the clubhouse turning on him, maybe. And I, the, the, it's very, very evident that this, the Cardinals roster has nothing but love and respect for for Mike Schilt. And he, he did a great job. And like you said, Cardinals won the division. And, I'm right behind you. I tend to not really invest much into awards, especially awards like this. You know, uh, yeah, the Mike Matheny thing's my favorite because it wasn't until 2015 that he finished in the top three in manager of the year voting. You know, in 2013, that team won 97 games and he wasn't in the top three. And, you know, he's manager of the year. Uh, he finishes in the top three. I think he was second in 2015. And that was the year after you know, the 2014 playoffs, which were the absolute <laughs> most poorly managed NLCS of my life. Uh, so, you know, it, it just goes to show you that I, I don't know what they use to evaluate it. I know that the Cardinals were better and substantially less frustrating than they were last year. Uh, and they made it to the playoffs. So I, I, he deserves it as far as I'm concerned, and I'm happy for him. Well, there's obviously something about the gig that we just don't get. Um, yeah. Only in, only because... They're real, like, who is the good manager? Like, who is the guy? For, for instance, the NBA, I think everyone agrees that, like, Popovich is an excellent coach. Um, and there's a couple of others. You know, in the NFL, you have Belichick and Harbaugh of the Ravens. Um, Trying try to think who. I'm sure there's some people, especially in, in uh, like, the Ravens fan base who probably doesn't like Harbaugh or something like that. But for the most yeah. part, like, they seem to be universally recognized as good. Uh, who is that guy in baseball right now? Because, like, like I love Joe Sheehan. I've been reading Joe Sheehan for a really long time. But, man, I swear during baseball season, he's just, like, 
surfing around looking for a manager to complain about, <laughs> like, like for a move that a manager just made so he can complain on Twitter about him for the next 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, that's, God, that's a great question. I, I think about someone like Dave Roberts, right? Yeah. And even, even the Dodgers, it seems like the Dodgers fans really hate Dave Roberts. And I don't blame them after, uh, uh-huh. I, I mean, it's, it's that, it's that weird kind of balance of like, obviously he's done a good job. He has this in the playoffs every year. Uh, he seems to be better. And I say this from very much on the outside looking in, but he seems to be better than Mattingly, who also, to his credit, got them in the playoffs pretty often as well. Uh, but like, yeah, like last year, I feel like he wasn't. If I'm if I'm remembering last year correctly, he he was leaving starters in too long or he yanking them early. Wasn't there a weird issue with Rich Hill last year where he took him out and and he didn't? I forget yeah, I something with Rich, Rich Hill. And then with the Kershaw thing this year, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that, that was a whole bullpen management thing. You know, if there if there's one thing I feel like just from being on Twitter and like snooping other teams' Twitter feeds because that's a lot of fun sometimes, is uh, there isn't a manager who knows how to manage a bullpen because it's impossible to manage a bullpen. It just it, it is, you know, especially because of the fan base. We don't know what pitchers are available on a daily basis. Uh, you, you just it, it's impossible to manage a bullpen. It, it's got to be the hardest thing on earth. Uh, like you see, you saw it this past postseason, this past World Series with AJ Hinch. Game seven is the perfect, the perfect situation. All Hinch has done is follow the new age playbook uh, to, you know, for removing pitchers. And Zach Grinke's dealing, and he goes to his bullpen, and it's over. Yeah, uh, it's that's the dumbest thing ever. The bullpen is the dumbest thing ever, and it's the most important thing ever. And it doesn't make any sense, and it's terrible. And other than, uh, other than like. Craig Council and maybe Rocco Baldelli because he's only been there for 45 minutes. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know if there like there are any beloved long standing and yeah, obviously not Baldelli or Council, but uh, uh, any beloved or long standing managers in baseball that get are revered that way. There's no way. That's probably why we have such a high reverence for like the managers of old, like Earl Weaver. Um basically guys who managed a long time ago who never really had to use a bullpen <laughs> like we mm-hmm. use them now. <laughs> like that's why yeah. they were so great because we never had to watch them screw up their bullpen management. Uh, yeah. but, but no, I, I agree with you. Like obviously managing a bullpen is much harder than what we all make it out to be on Twitter. It has to be because everyone yeah. see, is seemingly bad at it and that can't <laughs> be the case. Yeah. I was even, I forgot what, Oh, it was Tommy Pham. Uh, a, a local journalist, a, a guy who works on a local TV station named Adam Banker here in St. Louis, in the middle of July, he he was tweeting about how Tommy Pham wasn't having a great year because he had only had like one good month or something like that. I don't remember what it was. And that night, I wanted to watch Tommy Pham. Uh, he had broken his wrist like a week earlier, and he was playing through it or something like that. And I just wanted to see what was going on. And I was I was specifically following Tampa Bay Rays uh, Twitter. And they were just blowing up every decision. And I, I can't imagine there being more than like 15 to 35 people involved in Tampa Bay Rays Twitter. Uh, but they were all just bashing the manager's pitch, like his pitching decisions, his lineup decisions. And it was the funniest thing on earth to me. Like it, it was just the funniest thing on earth to me. 
And uh, yeah, the bullpen's the worst thing on earth. And every manager from the end of Tony LaRusso's <laughs> tenure on is is done having is their their entire legacy is screwed because of TLR. So that's what make TLR better than everyone. Yeah, uh, yeah, he 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 knew how to screw everyone who came after him. I, <laughs> so I have this. Uh, I have an uncle who, if you're ever in the car with him, he's just a complete maniac yelling at like other drivers um, convinced that everyone else on the road is like involved in some conspiracy to make his life miserable. Um, and it's quite uncomfortable to be in the car with him. Like I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy it at all. Uh, but whenever I call him out on it, his response is this is where I get out my uh, like aggression. Like, you know, I'm not like this to people like in general, like, face to face, you know, so like, this is where I just kind of get this out of me. And then I just go on about my day and I feel fine. Uh, I feel like that's how people use Twitter sometimes. So like, I'm not yeah. like when I see someone being saying something that's just really just ridiculous on Twitter, or just outrageous, or just not something a normal uh, thinking brained human <laughs> should say, mm-hmm. I kind of let it go. Because I feel like some people treat Twitter that way of just like this is my one outlet to just be a ridiculous person. That's that's brilliant. I love what you just did there. Well, so that's that's a part of me that feels that way. But another part of me wonders: Can people really compartmentalize their craziness <laughs> like that? Uh, apparently, my uncle can in a car. Uh, I mean, he <laughs> hasn't done anything else that's like too insane that that I know of. But so a part of me feels like, yeah, that's just how people use Twitter. So like whenever I see someone say something insane, I, I find it amusing and I laugh at it. Um, yeah. But there is a small part of me that wonders, like, should I be laughing at it? Or should I be wondering what this person is like walking around and, you know, uh, you know, if they're saying these crazy things here, what crazy things are they saying about things that actually matter? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I'm just really glad that I can do it all from home. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I never know which. Yeah, I, I guess I never know how healthy this. Uh, well, I, I know it's not a healthy medium. I think we can all agree on that. That we'd all be better off if Twitter did not exist. I guess I don't know whether or not how well people can compartmentalize their craziness, or if if you're crazy on Twitter, if that's kind of a indicator of what you're like in real life i don't know i i'm sure it's an individual basis kind of thing i i uh, but yeah i know i'm crazy and uh, you don't need to go any further <laughs> yeah. than twitter to see that so <laughs> well um b- before we talk about the astros thing i do want to circle back to uh prospects and minor leaguers uh because you know it's a privilege that we're able to have you on so i might as well ask these questions uh Tommy Edmond was kind of the guy who, uh, I guess, non-Cardinals fans would point to as like our devil magic guy. Uh, I think, you know, I don't think Cardinals fans still use that term very often, or at least Mm -hmm. not, uh, you know, unironically. Who, if you could take a stab at it, would be someone who could make some noise in 2020 that we are not expecting at all? not to like pad myself here, yeah. uh, not to give myself an, a lot of cop out room, mm-hmm. but it, it's tough to say right now, especially because in my eyes, the Cardinals 2020 roster seems pretty set. Um, 
it doesn't really seem like there is a lot of sway one way or the other. I, I don't imagine that the Cardinals are going to make that many, like that many additions. Um, I do think, and, and this is probably a conversation for a, a different day, but I do yeah. think that the free agent period and the Cardinals approach to it this year, uh, if the, if this free agent period is anything like the last two have been, I think that they're in a great spot to pounce on like some high value something in like January or February to make their team substantially better at a reduced cost because they can just wait for that to fall into their laps if they really are super confident with their team, like they're saying. Uh, that'll be you know that's a whole different argument, a whole different conversation. Uh, but uh, you know, I think that I mean. Depending on Yachty's health, I think Andrew Kisner could end up having a huge impact on this uh, on the Cardinals. You know, uh, our our good friend Ben Ceridi at Birds on the Black did his projection system, and uh, he's starting to work on his projection system for the 2020 season. And you know, every year Yachty's had fewer and fewer at bats, and of course, it's been because of injuries. And most of the time, those injuries are con- are uncontrollable injuries. You know, it's not like his knees are fading because he's older, or his back's fading because he's older. It's Oh, he took a ball off of his manhood. He took a ball off of his hand. He took a ball off of his knee. You know, it, it, it's things like that. And that's what's uh, reducing his, his plate appearances, his games. Uh, so you don't, you don't really know with Yadi. You don't know if he's going to be healthy. You don't know if it's going to be that one thing that, that ends him for a month or whatever. But I think if push comes to shove, I don't think that the Cardinals are going to have as huge of a fall off if Andrew Kisner has to come in and play a month. I think the little bit of exposure that he had last year, I think, I don't think he's the kind of guy who's going to take steps back like we saw out of Carson Kelly if he's not getting a lot of exposure. I think Carson, I think Andrew Kisner is a professional hitter uh, with a professional approach, and that kind of changes the dynamic with with what his role could be. And other than that, it's just like. They really don't have a position player that is ready to step up like Tommy Edmonds started to show uh, at the end of the 2018 season that hasn't already made it to the majors. You know, that, that's kind of the position they're in. You know, uh, I think that Jake Woodford, who needs to be added to the 40-man roster, he's a right-handed pitcher, a former first-round draft pick. Uh, Jake Woodford needs to be added to the 40-man to be protected from the Rule 5 draft. I think that if the Cardinals, they'll need him at some point. I think he could very, very easily uh, have a couple spot starts that are impressive that help find his way into the bullpen. Uh, I, I think like if the Cardinals are going to add, it's going to be in the bullpen. Uh, and, and if there's going to be a guy that's going to make a surprise impact, it's co- it's probably going to be one of the bullpen arms. So you know, someone come in and be as close to Giovanni Gallegos as a regular human being could be. So, you know, maybe someone like right-handed relief pitcher, Cody Whiteley, a Whiteley's interesting. He was a 27th round pick. Uh, He fell to the 27th round because he had Tommy John surgery and no one really knew what they were getting. Uh, Cardinals drafted him. They stretched him out to be a starter for like a half a second. And then they moved into the bullpen and he's taken huge strides, especially in the 2019 season. Uh, working on uh, a slider, a curveball, a, a sinker, and a fastball. Uh, all four of those pitches have come a long way. We saw him have a lot of success at Springfield and at Memphis during the 2019 season. He could end up being uh, a contributor. Uh, again, I don't. I wouldn't expect anyone to have a Giovanni Gallegos like year. I, I personally am high on Junior Fernandez. We saw him for a little bit. We saw him have a couple of bad starts or a couple of bad appearances. We saw him lose command of his pitches here and there, but. 
I think that he's the kind of guy who's going to fill a very, very, very important bullpen role for the Cardinals this coming year. Uh, and I hope he's given the opportunity to do it from the beginning. They're going to need him. I think that he's the biggest impact, but we know him. So he's not as like, not as much fun here. Uh, and, and other than that, like, you know, Ramon Urias, uh, a middle infielder, third baseman, he, he could potentially be, he's already on the 40 man. Uh, he could be an option. But other than that, like, I don't expect there to be that this year. Tommy Edmond was something very, very unique. And I'm sorry to keep going no, on here. No, but- this is great. Keep going. Tommy Edmund was something very unique because of his situation. In 2018, uh, he he started at Peoria and was getting pretty good at Peoria. And then, like, they had to rush him to Springfield. He got he had just gotten promoted to Palm Beach. And because of injuries at the at the Cardinals, at, at the major league level and at the AAA level, uh, they had to move him to Springfield. And he was not ready for it. He was defensively, but he wasn't offensively. But he did that thing that Dylan Carlson did that made Dylan Carlson so like unique entering the 2019 season, where he never looked bad. Uh, he, he just never looked bad. He handled it okay. He was playing at a level he shouldn't have been playing at because the, the game was a little too fast for him uh, and a little too much for him. But he didn't strike out too much. He took good at bats and he never lost a step in the field. He just seemed to get better and better in the field. Uh, and he played to his strengths. And I wouldn't say that the Cardinals don't have that. Uh, I, I think we saw that out of Randy Rosarena in 2019. Uh, but I just don't think that the Cardinals have a guy at the double A level or at the triple A level that we don't already know of, uh, at least a position player that that showed that, you know, I, I, the reason I brought up Ramon Urias a second ago is Urias got off to a really tough start, buoyed back and forth between AAA and AA for a second, uh, and then got hurt. And when he came back, he was really, really good after he got hurt. But, you know, he's older. I think he's already 25. He might be 26 uh, come spring training time. And he's kind of a weird defensive player. So I just, he's athletic. You could probably find a spot for him in the diamond. But I just don't know what to expect. Usually like a 25-year-old minor leaguer. And Urias is another interesting case because he spent time, a lot of time playing in the Mexican leagues. Again, that's where the Cardinals found him. But instead of finding a 22-year-old Randy Rosarena, they found a 24-year-old Ramon Urias. And that age difference really does make a difference, you know, uh, from a maturity standpoint, when you're trying to gauge the game at the minor league level and in the Caribbean leagues. So... uh, Again, I, I just keep circling back to say I don't necessarily know if the Cardinals have that guy in the system this year that we haven't already seen at the major league level. Okay. Well, there you go, everyone. You are never going to get that sort of analysis from Tara and I, so uh, enjoy that. Thank you. That was that was an excellent, excellent answer. Uh, I feel as though we should talk about the Astros just because of how big and ridiculous of a story this is. This has been, uh, for those who might not know, um, at The Athletic today, a story dropped by Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellick. Is it Drellich? Drellich? Do you know? Do you know I him? always say, when I read his name, I always say Drellich. Okay, Drellich. Um, basically saying that the Astros have a, I don't know, sophisticated is the right word, but a... a, a a system set up where they're using electronics to steal signs um, 
the implication being that it goes above and beyond what is normally allowed or accepted by perhaps unwritten unwritten rules for for sign stealing. Uh, I'm going to read you a quick passage from the article. Uh, This is what it says. The Astros set up in 2017 was not overly complicated. A feed from a camera in center field fixed on the opposing catcher's signs was hooked up to a television monitor that was placed on a wall steps from the team's home dugout at Minute Maid Park in the, in the tunnel that runs between the dugout and the clubhouse. Team employees and players would watch the screen during the game and try to decode signs sitting opposite the screen on massage tables in a wide hallway. When the onlookers believed they had decoded the signs, the expected pitch would be communicated via a loud noise, specifically banging on a trash can which sat in the tunnel. Normally, the bangs would mean a breaking ball or off-speed pitch was coming. Now, that popular Twitter account, I, I think you saw this too, Kyle, or tell me if you didn't, but John Boy, I think, is, is his name. He actually found video from one of these instances in question. It was from a White Sox-Astros game from September 2017, I believe. Uh, I already forget who the shoot. I already forget who the White Sox pitcher was on the mound. But anytime he was, anytime the catcher signaled for a changeup, there was a very loud, audible like two bangs, um, which is, I guess was being described here. They're banging on a trash can or something. Did you see this? Uh, the, was the hitter Evan Gaddis? Yes, yes, Gaddis. Okay, yeah, I I only saw part okay. of it, uh, but yes, I, I I saw it. I watched it long enough to hear the loud booms. Okay, um, one, if they were doing that all season, it it would. I can't imagine they were getting away with that all year because it seems so obvious on that video. Now I knew exactly what to look for when watching that video, so maybe that's why it seems so obvious. But the pitcher. Mm-hmm seemed to know what was happening after about the third time it happened. And he stepped off the mound and he and the catcher uh, started using a more uh, complicated sign. So they couldn't really steal them anymore. And, but, but I was, I guess, shocked at how brazen it was. Uh, The article also mentioned that I believe that there was, there was already was a rule in place that said, Basically, you can't use any sort of electronic means to capture signs. And after 2017 or around 2017, they also implemented a rule that said anytime you want to put a camera beyond the outfield fence, you have to get it first approved by the commissioner, um, specifically to prevent this type of thing. So, you know, I, I have a couple thoughts here. One... And this was kind of the question that the piece ended with. Uh, are the Astros being sort of picked on here just because we all hate the Astros? Just because of how dubious Ooh. they are in other areas and the fact that they're good. So a lot of teams are perhaps jealous of the Astros. Um, or are they really a renegade here? Are they really kind of like... I guess, at the forefront of what is essentially cheating. Uh, and I should also mention that Mike Fires, who was a pitcher for them uh, in, <laughs> until for a couple seasons and last pitched for them in 2017, very openly accused him of doing all this stuff, which shocked me as a player. Um, you know, Even if he's disgruntled by the organization, shocked me that an active player would just... Uh, 
call them out like that. Yeah, you're not kidding. Uh, that fires thing. It, it, that I mean, good, good for him. Yeah. I guess I'm sure that he'll never get signed. I'm sure he's. I'm sure he'll never get signed again. Uh, <laughs> no, he will. He, he's too talented of a pitcher, and pitching wins championships, so he'll get signed. But oh man, the the question is such an interesting an interesting question. I will say that you know I do have the belief that every team is looking for uh, the competitive advantage. I think the issue, like you said, is if you're banging a trash can that loud in that manner, it's like it's almost like saying, hey, we're not even bothering being discreet about this. Go ahead and come after us. We're just going to deny it. Uh, and you're going to have to do some real work to, to prove us wrong. And that's to me, that's the big difference here. I definitely think all of those things are in play. I think that because the, the Astros are the... Uh, you know, a very good team and a very, very well set up franchise that there's definitely a little bit more aggression uh, from every other fan base towards them. I also think that with their recent handling of uh, uh, those poor comments by the assistant GM, that I think that we're all already have, like even the people who didn't really feel one way about the Astros, uh, one way or the other about the Astros are kind of already on edge about the Astros a little bit because of the way that was handled and what was said and all of that. You know, uh, it was just, it's terrible timing. And I'm sure that the Astros are getting picked on a little bit here. Uh, it's also relevant because there were some uh, accusations of sign stealing in this most recent World Series. And I'm sure that that is helping fueling this, or is helping to fuel this. Uh, but my guess would be that this is just the first of a couple of uh, things that come to light. Uh, I, this, I don't think this is going to be the end of it. It might not even be the end of it with the Astros, but I'm sure that other teams are doing something similar to this, and we're going to find out in the very near future. So, so you do think that maybe the Astros aren't an anomaly, but that there might be other teams, if not doing ex this on this level, but doing something pretty close. Yeah, it's a it's a heavy accusation to to levy, but I yeah. I can't imagine it not. Right. Being on some level, teams trying to steal signs, even if it is just you know the signs being uh, received by the batter or signs being received by the third base coach from the dugout, whatever it might be, that's that's like been a, a part of baseball forever. Yeah, and we talk about it. And, uh, you know, I don't know electronically. I, I can't imagine. Uh, I barely know how to run the Twitter app on my phone. And believe me, I wish I wasn't joking about that. That is a serious, serious thing that I do. So I'm not one to talk about cutting edge technology in any mean. Uh, but I just can't imagine teams nowadays with managers having a shorter shelf life than ever, general managers having a shorter shelf life than ever. Uh, it, I, I can't imagine them not looking for the competitive advantage uh, in whatever aspect they can. And that hits pretty close to home with the St. Louis Cardinals and Chris Correa, you know, yeah. there, I'm sure there's somebody in every organization that's looking for ways to get themselves ahead. So, so speaking of Correa, he, he came up a lot today. Um, and let me first say that his prison sentence was insane and ridiculous and excessive for the crime that was committed. That said, I saw a lot of people basically saying, like, Correa was right. They were stealing, you know, um, this is why Correa did what he did. Um, which, I don't know. To me, that kind of is like, like, 
letting John Gotti off the hook for killing Paul <laughs> Castellano because Paul Castellano was a gangster too, right? Like it doesn't it doesn't really work that way. Like just because the Astros were doing something they shouldn't have been doing, and and I technically. I, I agree with that sentiment. I, I don't doubt for a second that the Astros stole proprietary, excuse me, proprietary data from the Cardinals. Uh, that's not the way you go about combating that um, or, yeah. or or investigating that. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm not quite down with that sort of like uh, I don't know letting Correa off the hook. Although again, that prison sentence was insane and ridiculous. Yeah. It's- it's faulty logic for sure. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, he definitely did something stupid and he had a, his own code or reason for doing it. But yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. I, I was hoping we'd see his Twitter feed get super active again today. I thought that would have been a lot of fun, but somebody oh, must have I, taken his Twitter feed away from him. I forgot like, he had what, that Twitter account. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's and right. you know, the other thing I, I wanted to check is I wanted to see what his sentence got commuted down to. Now, it was 44 right, months originally. Um, yeah, and I, he's I think out. they let him out in like yeah. yeah they let him out in like twenty six and then house arrest for like the last however many months yeah. or whatever I don't remember exactly what happened but still too probably too long for what was going on uh, but I I think that part of it was trying to set an example uh, about the proprietary technology and he was boy did, was he made an example <laughs> of <laughs> yeah well, all right well speaking of an example because this story's so big are the Astros gonna gonna get nailed here. And and, you and know, they probably I, should, right? If they were really were using cameras from the from the center field to relay to a guy with a trash can in the dugout. <laughs> yeah, you know, old uh, Oscar the Grouch sitting there in the, the can. Yeah. No, so I wanted to go back, and if I would have thought about this, I thought about it when you initially uh, DM me about being a part of this, and I meant to look. It, it reminded me of a couple years back, and to tie our entire conversation kind of together here, it reminded me of a couple years back when the Atlanta Braves uh, had to forfeit all of their international signings yeah. because they were they were tampering with the system, and you know their their GM got banned for life, and whose name I can't remember, and I'm I, I'm embarrassed. He was like by a gold. He was a golden boy right up until that, right? Wasn't he? I'm trying to remember yes. his name as well. Uh, go Absolutely. ahead. Sorry. Yes. No, no, you're right. Absolutely, he was. And they they hit him pretty hard. And I would think, you know, if you're, I'll be honest with you, if I'm running a business and I just got through a, an ugly thing that the Astros just got through and they handled it poorly, as poorly as they handled it with, with Taubman and, and that whole fiasco, mm-hmm. uh, I would. I would drop the hammer on them. Uh, I think that, you know, I think you need to. And I don't think it can be any less than what something similar to, and I don't even know how you would weigh this, but anything less than what like the Cardinals got for the Correa thing. Uh, It it has to be something strong and and drastic. Like unless there's proof that other teams are doing something almost identical. You know, uh, the the thing about the Atlanta Braves and the international free agent period or the international signing period. And that was John Capalella, by the way. Capalella, yeah, that's yeah. it. I I would have butchered his name yeah. anyway. So I, I, more, I probably more, just um, did for all I know, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, they were doing something that a lot of other major league teams were doing. Uh, they were 
negotiating contracts in a very, very skeezy way, if we can, if that word is even used by people anymore, uh, they were, they were negotiating contracts in a poor way with 14 year olds who, you know, three years or two years before they can sign, they had already signed these guys, uh, via a quote unquote trainer, which was an agent. Uh, and, and they were doing it in a way where, uh, and you know, they were beating the system by doing it. They, they were manipulating the system into their benefit. Uh, and that gentleman got banned for life. They had to forfeit all of those those international draft picks, or I know those international signees rather. And I, I think that with this being what it is and what it means, and you're, I mean, you're talking about a, a team that recently won a World Series and who has been to World Series and World Series and World Series and World Series, and uh, you know, that probably would be headed for another World Series and potentially if this didn't come to light. Uh, so I do think that you probably need to drop the hammer. And I, I would say, too, that, you know, there, you probably need to drop the hammer on anyone else who has evidence team-wise that this kind of stuff is going on. Uh, or you need to adjust the rules to make something uh, uh, more modern or something. I don't know. I just know that technology is moving faster than baseball, and uh, they don't seem to be adapting to it well. Yeah, I think that's as is the case for pretty much every walk of life uh, yeah. these days with regard to technology. I think my favorite or uh, or not favorite thing the Astros have ever done is didn't they get caught with a guy in their dugout basically filming the Red Sox dugout, and when yep. confronted their response was, no, we're just making sure they weren't filming our duck out or something like that. That was the report. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if that was really it or not, but that was the report. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my, my favorite thing that the Astros did was the whole Brady Aiken thing where they, you know, they drafted mm-hmm. Brady Aiken and they got some weird medicals back and, uh, Oh, God, man, I am embarrassed. I'm having a rough night tonight. I apologize. Sorry, I, I, I'm, I'm just going to make excuses, so I'll blow over that. But they, you know, they had Brady Aiken, and they had another prospect, and they couldn't sign that other prospect, that other draft pick, until they got Brady Aiken signed, or else they would have exceeded their slot bonus. And they kept trying to get Brady Aiken down and Brady Aiken down and Brady Aiken down, uh, and he wouldn't take anything less. So they couldn't offer that other guy a contract either. Uh, and they lost both of them, but they try to like hold the two hostage against each other. Uh, and you know, luckily it didn't pan out for, well, actually if they would have been able to draft Brady Aiken, sign him, it would have blown up in their face. It actually worked out well for them because Brady Aiken ended up being kind of a bomb. Uh, although now that I think about it, I think he had it. Now he had a bad season. He did have a bad season this year. Anyways, like it's in Lunau's tenure, they've had a lot of success, but it's kind of been one shady thing after yeah. another, uh, and it's crazy that it's been, I mean, when you look back on it, it's really been a lot of things over the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I'm really curious how he emerges from the last month because uh, it's it's been about as bad of a month as a team can have for a team that just won 107 games and won a pennant. No <laughs> really kidding. Get much no kidding. God, talk about perspective, Jesus. Yeah. A- anyway, uh, we have gone over an hour uh, because it's been so fun, I, I barely even realized it. But I think I'm going to go ahead and move on to the Chirp of the Week. Usually when I have people on, I have them do the Chirp of the Week. But when I asked Kyle, he just told me to go to hell. So I have to do it. Uh, <laughs> I, I have to do this myself. Um, 
we were talking about Adam Wainwright earlier, and I, uh, quick disclaimer, this is going to be really stupid, by the way, but uh, we were talking about Adam Wainwright earlier because he signed a contract. He's going to have another year with the Cardinals. Um, this will, what, be his 16th or 17th season with the big league club, I think the 16th. Um, his 100th year with the club. 100th year. Um, yeah, so he, he first appeared in 2005 – and is set to appear in 2020. Uh, his career so far spans three presidential administrations. That's uh, uh, George W. Bush, the entirety of Barack Obama's uh, two terms, and, of course, our current president. Uh, for no discernible reason, I decided to look at other pitchers in the Cardinals, uh, in Cardinals history who pitched for a long time, and to see how many presidents they covered. Um, and I found that both Jesse Haynes and Bob Gibson, Kyle, pitched mm-hmm. for the Cardinals during five different administrations. Can you believe that? Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, Jesse Haynes, uh, Wilson, Harding, Coolidge, Hoover, and FDR. Um, Bob Gibson uh, Bob Gibson went from LBJ, Nixon, Ford, Carter, um, wait, did I screw that up? No, I'm sorry, I screwed that up. I was looking at something. I was looking at uh, Nolan Ryan, so I looked at that. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. You're, oh, you're <laughs> getting ahead of yourself. Yeah, Bob Gibson definitely didn't start doing LEJ. Bob Gibson went Eisenhower, <laughs> uh, Kennedy, LBJ, Nixon, and Ford. So he covered five presidents. Uh, the reason why I brought up Nolan Ryan is because out of curiosity, I wanted to look at Nolan Ryan and Nolan Ryan covered seven presidents. Nolan Ryan first appeared during LBJ's term, the LBJ's uh, second term, that is. Um, no, no. What am I talking about? I'm not even making any sense. LBJ didn't have a second term. He of course took over after President Kennedy was assassinated and then was elected in 64 against Goldwater and didn't run in 68. But anyway, Nolan Ryan... First appeared in 1966. Last appeared in 1993 uh, during President Clinton's first year as president. So he covered seven presidents. That's LBJ, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, and Clinton. So there you go. I didn't really feel like if they're looking to see if there was another player who covered like eight presidents. I'm sure there was. Um, but that's your chirp of the week. Uh, I'm sorry for how bad it is. Uh, but yes, uh, Jesse Haynes and Bob Gibson... Uh, pitch in front of a lot of U.S. presidents, as did Nolan Ryan. That's great stuff. You know, the the only other person that comes to my mind would be Jamie Moyer, but I I don't even know. I'm, but I'm I mean, look that up right now. Yeah. Hold on, that's a, yeah, that's I, fine. I, that that actually gives me a second to rattle. Maybe on. Jesse Orozco uh, as well. Uh, oh, okay. So oh God, Moyer began with Reagan and ended with Obama. And ended with Donald Trump, yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah, so that's uh, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama. So he also had five. I'm going to look uh, up Jesse Orozco, uh, 79 to 2003. My goodness. So that would be Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush. So that's five. That's oh, also five. Uh, man. Yeah, yeah. Pretty crazy. Uh you know, um, I, I'm not going to go too deep into this, but I'm just going to end it by saying I hope somehow Wainwright makes it to four, and I hope that's because he is around in 2021. Yeah. 
Yeah. Or, you know, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. And also, uh, you know, Yadier Molina, <laughs> not a pitcher, uh, yeah. but Yadier Molina just might be around for a couple hundred. He might. Or he, so. he, yeah. Uh, yeah, he might still have two or three in front of him as far as we know. Oh, God. Anyway. It's just incredible. That's all I have, Kyle, yeah, unless all. you have anything else to add. The only thing I'd like to add, uh, as, as I start thinking, like, you know, as we have the rest of the conversation, my brain starts churning prospects. Yeah, that always happens. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah you know. Um, I, I just want to say that, like, as I was searching for a prospect, I was definitely searching for someone who's under the radar. Uh, I would expect Dylan Carlson to be available relatively quickly. Uh, I would expect him to hopefully get a real chance uh, out of the shoot in spring training. And while he might not be an all-star right out of the bat, he will be an all-star in due time. That reminds me of a question I actually wanted to ask you. Ah. um, And and sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, So so finish your point, then I'll ask you because I I will remember. No, that's honestly, it was just that simple. I, I, after we stopped talking, I thought, well, I didn't really mention Dylan Carlson other than to talk about like comparing him to Edmund just there for a little bit, but I just wanted to make it clear that I do firmly believe that it's in the best. If the Cardinals don't add something big in the outfield or whatever, it's in their best interest to get him to the major league level and get him to the major league level quick, uh, regardless of the fact that he's only had, you know, a hundred at bats or a hundred plate appearances or whatever it is uh, at the AAA level. He's ready. He's ready. And sure, there's going to be some weird moments, uh, but he's never going to look bad. And that's the beauty. It's going to sound crazy, but that's the beauty of Dylan Carlson. He's not, he's, he doesn't have moments where he looks awful. Those yeah. moments don't exist. Uh, and that's why you know he's something special. And I know that that sounds crazy, uh, but like with every prospect, what uh, this is this is my cheat. This is my cheat. You know, I watch two to three minor league games every night that I can. And basically what I'm looking for is are the players who don't make a fool of themselves uh, that frequently. That's step one. And then really, really honing in on their skills. And Dylan Carlson does not ever make a fool of himself. Uh, he might get spun around out in the outfield every once in a while, but he makes a play. He's not going to climb a wall and jump after a baseball uh, that's 45 feet in front of him. Uh, and he never looks bad at the plate. Sure, he might take a bad cut here and there, but if he takes a bad cut, what you'll see is it'll be a bad cut on an 0-1 count, and somehow that count will be 3-2 uh, uh, against, you know, 2018 version of Edwin Diaz. You know, he's, he's something else. He's something special and uh, that because he is on the cusp of that specialness, I, I kind of omitted him from the conversation earlier. Well, I, I have a hypothetical scenario to present to you. And I think Dylan Carlson is a good of an example as any to use here. Uh, let's just say in some crazy world, he, he lights it up in spring training to the point that it's obvious they need him. And they need him immediately. Uh, let's say there's a competition for an outfield spot and Carlson clearly wins the job. Does the current Chris Bryant uh, grievance situation have enough influence on the Cardinals or whoever to basically put to rest any idea of manipulating service time? I would absolutely think so. Uh, but I would also point out, and you know, I can be car- critical of the Cardinals front office. I can be critical of the Cardinals coaching staff, especially mm-hmm. the way that they've handled prospects recently. But the Cardinals have not necessarily been a team that's jockeyed with uh, 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 
you know, time the way that a lot of other teams have. They've been pretty aggressive about bringing their best team forward. You know, Jordan Hicks is the most recent example. And that had a lot to do with Matt Carpenter stepping up. I, I don't remember who the players were, but I remember Carpenter in particular. It might have been Carpenter, Yachty, and Wayno. Uh, but Carpenter in particular said this guy, and you know Adam, or, uh, uh, you know Yadi or Molina had any say in anything that happens with the pitchers. Uh, but they stepped up and they said this guy needs to be a part of the team, and that of course changes the dynamic a little bit. But I would think that whatever happens here with Chris Bryant in particular is going to have a very very strong effect uh, on how things are handled moving forward throughout Major League Baseball. But I, I do think that like the Cardinals jockeying of service time. I don't know if that's necessarily something that I feel like I've seen uh, the Cardinals do all that often. Uh, I do think that I do think they did it with Tommy Edmond last year. Tommy Edmond was clearly ready for the major leagues in spring training, uh, not just because of how he performed, but you could just tell that he was ready for the major leagues. And because they had Yaro Munoz, or you know, they they had Munoz ready to go, and they had a bench pretty well set, and they were keyed in on making Drew Robinson a member of the roster. Uh, uh, they sent Edmund back down, and he waited for two months of just raking and playing amazing uh, down in the minors before getting called up. Uh, I do think that there was part of it there, but I think that that was more opportunity than anything because I think they wanted to run with Drew Robinson and Gyro uh, for as long as they could. So uh, I wouldn't expect the Cardinals to get cute. I, I think that they understand that they have a serious bat that they need to replace. And if Dylan Carlson looks ready, I think I really do think he'll make it out of spring training. Good. That, that is uh, that's very good to hear. Yeah, and you know you'll you'll hear Mo again. I ta- I'm sorry for rambling. No, but keep going. They will continue to say all winter that you know he has a couple guys ahead of him, and I do think that those guys will get a fair shot, uh, but. I don't think that those guys will get a fair shot if they'll, uh, you know, if they're terrible in spring training. I, I don't think if Harrison Bader hits below 200 and striking out all the time, and Lane Thomas is doing that, and Tyler O'Neill is doing that, and Randy Rosarina are doing that, and Dylan Carlson's doing what he did last spring, uh, I don't think that that's going to, like, those guys ahead of him that's not enough to stop him from being a part of the major league roster. Uh, now, again, if, if Thomas is doing fine and Rosa Reina is doing fine and Tyler O'Neill is doing fine and Carlson's lighting it up, then things could get a little awkward, a little interesting and he might get sent down, but he'll get brought up quick. And I, I really don't think that's a manipulation of service time so much as it is the Cardinals just trying to find out what they have. Sure. Uh, that's if those pieces aren't moved. So. Well, I'm I'm usually not someone who uh, goes crazy, uh, like has a countdown for when pitchers and catchers report. But for some reason, what you just said has me really excited for um, for spring, for all this to begin again, and we can start complaining about our baseball team again because uh, that's what most of us do best. Kyle, this was <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for jumping on. We went uh, we went long, but I'm glad we did. This was fun. Oh man, Alex, it, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, man. Uh, you, I, I, I'm going to say it here. I, I say it on Pat a lot. I, I know you don't get a chance to write a lot because you have like a thousand kids now or something. I don't, I don't know, but because um, uh, I know you're super busy, but uh, you're, you are my favorite writer. I mean that. I love reading everything you write, and uh, I, it's just a pleasure to talk to you whenever I get the opportunity, man. Ah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm actually going to hopefully start writing a lot more very soon, but uh, I've certainly said that before. Um, I, I've actually broken bread with Kyle uh, last time I was in St. Louis, ah. and he gave me, uh, and then, you know, we had some drinks, yes. and he gave me a ride to the airport 
uh, I don't even remember if I said thank you, but if not, I'm saying thank you right now. That was fun. And uh, I, yeah. pre- I appreciated the ride. That was a blast, man. I, I, anytime you're in town or yeah. anytime I make it to DC, we got to do it again. Oh, we'll definitely do it next time I'm in St. Louis. Uh, anyway, everyone, Kyle, uh, where can people follow you on Twitter? You can follow me at KYLER416. I basically just tweet uh, childish stuff at Bob Nightingale and do prospects after dark. And God only knows when that is. And I don't even know how Periscope and Twitter work. So good luck trying to figure it out. Well, I, I for one, love Bob Nightingale. Uh, I, 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 I think he's like a genius, uh, some kind of mad genius. Uh, and I'm glad he is in all of our lives. Um, I am Alex Crisofoli. You can follow me on Twitter at AlexCard79. This has been episode 52 of Chirps. Tara should be back next week. Um, But yeah, thank you all for listening and go Cardinals.